Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for Political Rewind. Uh, you just heard an update on what's happening down along the Georgia coast from Ellen Reinhardt. We're going to talk a little bit about that at the very beginning of the show today and then move on to a pretty big political agenda that we have to take on. Greg Bluestein is here. It's Wednesday. He joins us on Wednesdays. He is political reporter, lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's in the paper every day, and he also files regularly for the Political Insider blog. You've just come from a, a briefing with Governor Kemp on the latest on the storm and, the, and what's going to happen in the day ahead, right? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's saying even though the storm seems to be veering further from Georgia's coast, to be cautious, to be vigilant, and for the folks who have evacuated, do not return yet. We'll uh, talk about that in just a minute. Uh, Stacey Evans is with us. She, of course, is a former member of the uh, Georgia House Democrat, ran for governor in the uh, primary uh, last uh, cycle out. Uh, thanks for being with us, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Leo Smith is sitting right next to you. He's a longtime Republican operative in Georgia, used to be the head of minority outreach uh, for the or minority engagement is, I think, the way you always like to say that. <laughs> Uh, and now is uh, doing some consulting. Do you have candidates in this cycle yet, Leo? No candidate. I'm working on some 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 back office things for infrastructure. Oh, ho. all right. All right. That sounds good. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Emory University political science professor, just back from the uh, annual conference of political science professors and associate professors from all over the country. I know you do that every year. Yeah, so the American Political Science Association. Well, I'm glad you could be back with us today. Um, let's turn right away to news about the storm. Do that for just a couple minutes, Greg. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of what the governor said when you were with him. Uh, here's his latest update on what's happening down along the coast. The National Weather Service latest projections show that Hurricane Dorian nudged slightly west with significant rain bands and strong winds moving into our coastal counties. We're seeing that right now. Uh, Bryan, Camden, Chatham, Glen, Liberty, and McIntosh counties remained under a tropical storm warning as well as a storm surge warning. Brantley and East Charlton County as well as Wayne County are now under tropical storm warnings based on the new projections that we have this morning. We are getting reports of downed trees already in Glen and Wayne County, uh, which obviously that can be dangerous if you're still in your home with a tree falling on your home, knocking down power lines. So we urge citizens to be on the lookout or be cognizant of that. Serious concerns remain that we will see damaging and life-threatening surf with a coastal surge of three to five feet. We expect a high tide between now and 3 p.m which could significantly worsen flooding. We expect another high tide shortly after midnight, where again we can see a strengthened storm surge and more flooding, depending on where the storm is at that point. So that's uh, Governor Kemp uh, less than an hour ago updating uh, things. Greg, you were there. Uh, Congressman Buddy Carter is uh, on the phone with us right now. He's down in Pooler, and if you're not just exactly familiar with where Pooler is, you're basically right east, uh, west rather, of the uh, Savannah Airport, right, Congressman? So you're right, you're basically in Savannah, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's all technically Savannah. In fact, there's parts of Savannah that are west of us here in, in Pooler as well. Okay. Uh, give us an up. Tell us uh, briefly uh, how things are going down in Savannah. I know I know that you're not expecting the, the hurricane winds or perhaps even tropical storm winds on land, but the storm surge is still a big concern for folks down your way, isn't it? Well, it is a big concern. Uh, of course, storm surge uh, is a, a big concern, as you say. We are also concerned about the, the rain bands that are coming through, which, uh, you know, we're having a, a new moon now, so we've got high tides as it is. That in combination with the storm surge, with the rain bands, and then, of course, wind is always a concern. 
Uh, Congressman, state officials just reopened I-16 eastbound to head back into into the Savannah area. Uh, what, what's your message to, to evacuated residents who might want to return earlier? Well, the window of opportunity for um, people who are going to leave is, is just about expired. So we would encourage them just to make sure you secure yourselves as best you can and please be safe. Uh, as far as people trying to get back in, now is not the time. Please stay away until... You get more information from emergency management officials. They will let you know when it's safe to come back. But uh, just because the contraway has been has been ended uh, has ended at, at noon doesn't mean that we want people coming back. Um, it, it simply means that there's enough room on the other side of the westbound lanes for people to get out if they still want to get out. But I do say that 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 window of opportunity is shrinking quickly. Leo Smith wants to ask you a question, Congressman. Hello, Congressman. Hey, I noticed that you've got a lot of media, the national media, camped out on the riverfront down in Savannah. And I was just wondering, with all the attention we've been giving to our ports down there, I mean, is there potential impact, uh, you know, on our infrastructure that we've been working on? Well, there is. Fortunately, the Georgia ports are are very well prepared. Uh, and, and so is all the emergency management officials here up and down the coast, from Camden County all the way up to Chatham County. This isn't our first rodeo, unfortunately. We've been through this before, and we know what to do. And, yes, we are preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Uh, the only predictability about hurricanes is they are unpredictable. That's the only thing you can really say about them. If this hurricane were to uh, wobble 20 miles westward, it could be devastating. And for those who are thinking, oh, it has decreased in its in its strength from a Category 5 to a Category 2, listen, a Category 2 hurricane is a dangerous hurricane, and we need to be aware of that. Tom Faust uh, just uh, corrected me. Uh, I was under the impression that you were not expecting uh, hurricane force winds on land. He says that is still possible. And essentially what you're saying, if there's any kind of wobble, that's exactly that could happen. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that, of course, has been our experience in the past with hurricanes. We've seen them wobble and, and go west or east, whatever it may be. Obviously, we're hoping it will go further east, but at the same time, we have to be prepared. And I am concerned. I'm concerned that some people are complacent and that they simply think that this a lot of this is overkill. Well, that's the responsibility of emergency management officials. They have to make sure that they're doing everything within their power to make sure that our citizens are safe. And, and the governor kind of echoed that point. He said he, he, he talked about his better safe than sorry approach and said state officials learned after the ice storm in 2014 to, to take every step possible and better to be accused of of over-preparing than under-preparing, right? Carson? Yeah, although I do have to say we had listeners on our show yesterday when we talked about the mandatory evacuations who uh, sent us notes that were, they were angry mm-hmm. that they were being forced to evacuate. And I think that sort of makes a point that we talked about on the show yesterday, which is you just can't win a lot of times <laughs> in these situations. Congressman, paint us a quick picture, if you will, of what it looks like in Savannah today in terms of people who have left, boarded up stores. Just give us a quick description of what it's like down there right now well there are very few businesses that are still open most of the businesses are closed it does not appear that as many people have left this time as did during matthew or some of the previous storms that is of concern to to myself and to the emergency manager officials and to those people who have stayed we would just plead with them please be careful please don't get out. Um, please stay hunkered down and, and let's get this through. Hopefully it'll pass by quickly. Hopefully it'll have the least amount of impact that it can on us. All right. Congressman Carter, we thank you for taking a little time uh, to talk with us. We hope everything goes very well for you, for all of our listeners down there along the coast where we've got you all in our thoughts. And of course, GPB News will be updating everybody regularly on uh, what's happening with uh, Hurricane Dorian in the hours ahead. Thanks a lot, Congressman. Thank you. All right, let's, um, Greg, let's move on to this story that er, uh, ended up on the front page of your newspaper today. And let me set the stage just briefly, if I can, and then open it up for conversation. So a matter of weeks ago, Governor Kemp announced that he wanted what I think it's fair to characterize as pretty dramatic cuts in state budgets, agency budgets across the board. In the first stage of this, which means the supplemental budget, Mm -hmm. 
he asked for he demanded four percent cuts. Then he wants for the next fiscal year budget, which starts July first, six percent more in cuts. Right? Okay. So f- relatively soon after that, Speaker Ralston announced that he was taking the governor very seriously. He wanted to make sure that the legislature could get on top of this with agencies. And he announced he was going to have budget hearings, probably starting at the end of September, early October. Right? Mm -hmm. The latest development now is that Governor Kemp has told the agency heads... Ignore the requests for a budget for budget hearings, which the speaker's people have already said we're going to do the last week of September and just submit your budgets to us. Um, what the heck is going on here, Greg Bluestein? Well, there's some tension uh, clearly between the, the Georgia House and, and Governor Kemp's office. And there's a usual pattern to, to these things. You have usually near the uh, near the beginning of the, every legislative session, Governor Kemp unveils his budget proposal. Then the House and, and the Senate, but first the House usually gets the first crack, almost always gets the first crack at it and the, and the, and the last crack at it. And then it goes to, and then it's passed by both chambers. It's the one thing the Georgia legislature has to do is pass the budget, and Kemp gets the final sign-off on it. Um, well, in this case, uh, the, 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 the State House is trying to exert a little bit more influence over the shape of this budget by holding these hearings. They feel like they were caught off guard. They were stunned by this. By the uh, announcement for the 10% cuts over 10% a period cuts of months. Because, in part because just a few months ago we were in session and there was no there was no hint of this coming. We all knew that there could be budget cuts down the road, but there's no hint of budget cuts this coming this year. And so they feel a little scorned. They feel a little burned by this. Uh, and Governor Kemp's administration essentially says, you can have a crack at it. Just wait till during the legislative session. They want the first crack of it. They don't. They don't. They they want. They want to be able to shape the budget their way rather than having outside influence. Yeah, Stacy, you obviously were part of this process during your years in the in the legislature. I mean, the governor's agencies do submit their budget proposals to the governor before legislative hearings take place, typically. So that's not uh, unusual, right? Right. That's not unusual. What was unusual. Would be, what would be considered unusual here is the legislature saying, "Hey, we're going to have these hearings, and copy us on on everything that you send to to Governor Kemp." So I don't, I wouldn't fault Governor Kemp for saying what he said, but it does certainly reveal a little bit of tension, and as has been hinted to, perhaps shows that the legislative leadership, at least, is not convinced that these cuts are necessary. And if you give a little context to the leadership's position, Terry England came in as chairman of the Appropriations Committee when the economy was going down fast, when Governor Deal first came in, and they had to make big cuts. And he's lived through that. And I would imagine from his perspective, he's thinking, if we don't have to cut, I'm not going to ask these agency heads to do it. I'm not going to ask my staff to go through the laborious process that it takes to implement those cuts. And I think that may be what the legislature was thinking when when they set these hearings. But I guess now it's not going to happen. Um, let me – I always have to do a disclaimer here. Uh, GPB is a, a state agency, and uh, so they – our our head is going to have to – our CEO is going to be part of this process. But I also always – point out that programming, this show, the other shows on our air here, are not funded by state money. We are on the air because of your donations out there. And I just want to make that clarification. But, Andra, I think in the age of Donald Trump, uh, talking about, you know, report to me, don't worry about, you know, whatever, whoever it is, uh, there is something that feels uh, like a, a kind of a new attempt to exert a power that uh, perhaps a governor before this might not have uh, wanted to do in such a dramatic fashion. I agree, and it's actually pretty unfortunate that this would happen. So I think a lot of people will hear this and not being familiar with the budget process will be like, well, doesn't spending start in the legislature, particularly in the House, and wonder why they're not taking the lead or being allowed to take the lead. And then there's this issue of oversight. And so the legislative function is to provide oversight to the executive branch. And so that's where this actually starts to look really defensive um, on Governor Kemp's part. I think if we could put all of that aside, just from a practical standpoint, it's better for the executive
executive and the legislative branch to be partners in this process because there's going to have to be a lot of translational work done. And what seems to have not happened here is there hasn't been a conversation about why these cuts are needed at this particular time. It seems like the bond market is looking very favorably to these changes. It looks like uh, Governor Kemp is actually being proactive in foreseeing that uh, the economy might not be as strong as it will be in a few years. And so this would be helpful, but it would actually be really helpful if people were working together on this so that it could be explained why it might be prudent to do budget cuts now when there doesn't appear to be a yeah, need for I, us. Thank you for pointing that out. The bond rating services have praised Governor Kemp for being willing to act before he finds the state in any kind of hole if there's an economic slowdown, Leo. I think exactly that. I think Wall Street is starting to look for someone who is showing some foresight and vision on what's expected with um, our markets. And, you know, the other thing I think is a very good look, Dr. Gillespie, for um, the governor to actually be demonstrating a sentiment, and that is, is that we don't necessarily trust the political process to shrink government spending. And so sometimes executive action needs to be put up a, a, a little bit higher on the pedestal. And this is a great discussion and a great um, opportunity for the public to see how that budgeting process works and what responsibilities administrators have over the uh, legislators. Yeah, but, but what I would argue is he's foregoing that opportunity by telling people to not go to the hearings because that looks mm-hmm. defensive. That looks antagonistic. Or it looks so, Trumpish. Yes. And so <laughs> if you're doing this one with, for sound reasons and to be transparent, you might as well just go along with them and do the hearings. Yeah. You know, Stacy. so here, let me paint a scenario and see if you think I'm right about this. If the budget hearings were to move forward, if Terry England uh, could go ahead and have these late September budget mm-hmm. hearings and an agency had any given agency head comes in, says, here's where I'm planning to cut. It at least opens a door for the Appropriations Committee to give feedback that says, well, we're a little concerned about this cut or that cut because it may diminish the services you're at, whatever the uh, conversation might be. Mm-hmm. There is that potential to happen in a hearing Am I got that right? Absolutely. I mean, that could happen in a hearing. I would argue, though, that the same agency head, when he goes to talk to Governor Kemp, whether that's to the governor directly or through his staff, that same conversation can be had. But the difference is it's not held in public and you might not have the opportunity. Well, it's also not being held by by the House, which has a certain amount of control over the budgeting process. Sure. I mean, I think eventually those hearings will happen, whether they happen in September or whether they wait and happen um, in January. So they will happen. What I find a little bit frustrating about this whole conversation that started uh, a week ago is that let's assume that it is prudent to prepare for a downturn in the economy. Why don't we also talk about other ways that Georgia might be able to raise revenue and what other job creation opportunities are out there? I mean, we, we're sitting on this legislation that just passed that opens up um, cultivation of medical cannabis, but yet the agency that's supposed, supposed to approve the licenses for these companies to start the cultivation has done very little. That hasn't application process all, hasn't no. started. Nothing, that process is is doing is going nowhere right Nothing's now. Happened. That is a lot of potential money in tax revenue on the table that we're not even working on getting out of the gate. So there's there's two ways to deal with an economic downturn. And unfortunately, it seems like Kemp is focused only on one side. And if you look at some of these departments that are going to have to be doing cuts, you're talking about public safety, public defenders, Georgia State Patrol, GBI. You're talking about the Department of Ag, which may have some big expenses coming up soon if this hurricane is bad. That doesn't necessarily seem like a good idea to me. All but 23% of the budget is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And Speaker Ralston, uh, to, to, to Stacey's point, actually assigned this committee to look for ways to raise revenue, too. And he packed the committee with a lot of people who are supportive of, of different gambling initiatives as well. So that's an interesting side note on this. But politically speaking, for, for Governor Kemp, he's a go- he, as a candidate, he pledged to cap state spending mm. based on his formula. He hasn't quite gone there yet. Um, his, his campaign, his, his aides say that he will at some point. Um, but also, politically speaking, he also wants to safeguard his other big campaign promise, which is the 5% teacher pay raise. Right. He's already gotten about halfway there. He's got the 3%, but the other 2% is going to be very costly. So this is a way he, he feels by ordering these budget cuts, but also safeguarding that teacher pay raise, um, he can so, fulfill that. So promise. Andre made, I think, I think an interesting point, a, a, val, a very valid point, which is um, he could have had a part, perhaps had a partnership with legislators over the budget cuts, although presumably, as Stacy has suggested, maybe everybody's not on board with how much of a cut the governor's looking for, and that's a cause for some of this friction. But in a larger universe in terms of all this, Greg, 
uh, this is a, 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 a perhaps a bad way to start the next session underway and could presage some pretty rocky times between the governor and at least the House in the months ahead. And rocky times in general. The, the, the Georgia legislature hasn't had to deal with budget cuts in uh, six, seven, eight years. You know, not since the beginning of Governor Deal's terms when you had to have really difficult decisions, not just about Hope Scholarship, but other budget cuts. And at a speech the other day, Kemp, Kemp said, hey, look, we're not going to have the, the good times that Governor Deal enjoyed for the for most of his first term and in in, in in all of his second term. We're going to have to make tough decisions. But you're right. State lawmakers aren't quite on board with the fact that they have to make tough decisions now. They feel like some of those decisions might have to wait, could, should wait till until there's a recession or there's, there's, a, uh, there's, there's, there's more difficult financial times. Okay. Um, you know what? While we're talking about uh, potential cuts to funding in the state of Georgia, I'm going to skip down the, the, the line a little bit. Um, we learned overnight that uh, President Trump has and and the uh, Department of Defense have agreed that they're going to take three point six billion dollars from previously approved projects across the country to divert to uh, spending on the wall. And although we have no idea, Greg, where, how Georgia we're told that all 50 states could be involved in losing military funds and um Although we don't know what's specifically going to happen here, Greg, the Pentagon had previously identified $260 million in Georgia that could be on the chopping block under Trump's emergency uh, spending for a border wall. He declared that back in February. And that could include as much as $100 million for cyber instructional, uh, a facility at Fort Gordon, nearly $31 million for a hangar at Moody Air Force Base. Leo, how is... I mean, right now, uh, the president needs to get his wall under construction. But in the long run, when states see the possible cuts that they're going to take for facilities that are income producing, it, it, it has a potential to backfire on them, doesn't it? It's certainly going to be a very difficult discussion. I, and, and I think already part of this is uh, fact finding, because we've learned that the president has focused on repairing walls space that was, had been in disrepair, disrepair. And so while some has argued that he hasn't done anything on the border wall, the fact is, is that he's done quite a bit of repairing and reconstruction. And then so this will make the next argument. OK, you, you've got to follow through with this campaign promise. Republicans still want the wall. They do. And so uh, meet your constituents requests. All right. Well, this came up at the last minute, and I and I want to get. We're going to get into this more on Friday's show, but I just wanted to get a quick read from you all about uh, the fact that Georgia could lose, especially Stacy in the cybersecurity area. Right now, Augusta, with its cybersecurity facility, the state is trying to brand itself mm-hmm. as a center for uh, cybersecurity. Not only is it a big deal for job creation and economic development in Georgia, this is actually something that is needed. This is something that would be more closely categorized as an emergency as opposed to this fake border wall emergency that Trump wants to pretend exists. What I don't understand about this, as with so many other things with President Trump, is why his base of supporters would believe him if he stood up and said that he's halfway through construction on the wall, whether he was or wasn't. And so... It doesn't matter for his political message. And in the meantime, he risks alienating and making angry voters who were expecting jobs to come. Talk about uh, really messing up um, your potential voting base when you talk about cutting from the military. That, that's it an, makes no sense. Andrew, that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, promises made. Democrats could uh, go out and campaign next year on promises made, promises not kept, like the wall. But Stacey Evans makes a point. Trump's voters, if he tells them he's building the wall, the chances are good they're going to go along with him. Well, I mean, and while that's definitely true, I think the thing that he doesn't want to have to deal with is the cacophony of, of reporters saying that this isn't true, or even though it would be like, you know, the 12,000 on the first lie, the, you know, one more sort of lie on the PolitiFact meter and, and all those other types of things. So, yes, the, he has to expend time and energy calling things fake news if he gets called out for making certain things. 
things up. You know, I think the question that I have from these projects that will now be suspended as a result of them is how aware the communities that are directly affected by this, and even those that aren't, were aware that these projects were in the offing. To the extent that they weren't aware of them, I'm not sure that suspending or postponing those, those projects or, you know, deferring them because you're using the money for other reasons is actually going to make that much of a difference. Now, on the other hand, I think the optics of broadly speaking, diverting money away from military spending for the border wall, or in particular, diverting money away um, from things that could be used to address uh, very sort of, you know, uh, pertinent and, and timely problems because of the border wall. I think those are politically more risky for the president. So it's very motivating. And I think we sometimes overlook this about the the, the Trump base. OK, um, when we say winter is coming in the wall in Game of Thrones, um, the idea is that impact of saying winter is coming is very motivational. OK. The, the Trump base is not so concerned about an actual necessarily physical wall. And I know that infuriates a lot of people, but they are, they are more interested in the spirit of saying we need to prepare for this onslaught of, you know, undocumented immigration and we need to prepare for all these people invading our country. And talk that, about fake news. That, well, it doesn't matter if it's fake news. It, it, it's, it shifts the ability to have legislative focus in a way that we haven't had in right. a while. we got to get to a break. But, Greg, I, one of the things that I think about when I think of any cuts in military spending in Georgia is I think back to a Senator Sam Nunn or even further back to a Senator Richard Russell. Now, they, were, they happened to be Democrats, but it really didn't matter. Mm-hmm. When it came down to military spending in the state of Georgia, they were fierce in protecting against any federal attempt to take money away from the state. And I wonder if we are in living in an environment that's similar to that uh, today. David Perdue t- joined at the hip to President Trump. Johnny Isaacson's become a free agent. He will certainly be able to step up. But the environment's changed in a way, or, or am I wrong? Well, you better believe these projects are coveted by, by the local congressmen. I mean, Representative Rick Allen in Augusta area is probably fiercely fighting behind the scenes. I don't know how much he'll say publicly over the next few days or weeks if, if, that, if that nearly $100 million project for cyber, cyber tech in Augusta is, 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 is imperiled. But um, they're trying to work behind the scenes. At the same time, though, they've got very limited options because tr- this, is a, this is a Trump initiative. And if they try to backfill it in, in the budget process, maybe through the U.S. Senate, then House Democrats are going to block it. They're going to say, hey, you know, this, this is your doing. Yeah. Good luck. All right. You um, know, Purdue's done a lot quick. of preemptive work. In May, you know, he was taught, he, he, he actually went on television speaking much about the president's prioritizing Georgia's military infrastructure. So Purdue's on top of this, I think. Okay. Uh, it's uh, uh, good, for, uh, uh, good to keep in the conversation, to balance the conversation, Leo. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, let's talk about the outcome of a special election that took place yesterday, what it tells us about where we're headed in the Georgia House in the year ahead. As Hurricane Dorian gets closer, GPB has you covered with the latest information from the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. Listen at four minutes past each hour, and we'll give you updates on evacuations, shelters, and other state announcements. You can also go to our website, gpbnews.org, for the latest news on the hurricane, plus listen live. You can also follow us on our GPB apps or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. 20 years ago, U.S. voting went electronic without a real understanding of the security risks. Even if you ask us back then, what exactly should we do to build secure voting machines? We wouldn't have really been able to tell you precisely what you needed to do. I'm Ari Shapiro. A look at security improvements and the vulnerabilities that remain ahead of the next election this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB, gpbnews.org, and the GPB apps. Greg Bluestein, one of the most invisible special elections that we've ever seen in Georgia, at least in modern, in, in the last couple of years, is the uh, special election in House District uh, 71 uh, to uh, replace David Stover, who has been representing uh, a representative out of Noonan, that's Coweta, Fayette counties. There were four candidates, three Republicans, one Democrat. The Democrats thought maybe this is a Republican district, mm-hmm. but Democrats thought, well, if Republicans split their 
votes, we could end up with a Democrat in a runoff. That didn't happen. We do have two Republicans competing now in a runoff, Philip Singleton and uh, Lynn Westmoreland's daughter, Marcy Westmoreland Sacrison. Um, And here's why that's interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, turnout was abysmal. Apparently, Democrats did not show up to vote. Um, And more, it is possible that Philip Singleton is kind of quietly running a campaign in which he's whispering that he would vote against David Ralston if uh, the uh, Republicans maintain control of the House, whereas Sacrison has had the support of Ralston Mm -hmm. from the start. Yeah, there's two things here. I mean, it's it's really hard to read tea leaves in these super low turnout elections. Only a few thousand people voted. There was not there's not a lot of attention, especially in a very crowded metro Atlanta media market for this race. But there was scant evidence of, of the people who did turn out of any sort of sign of a Democratic energy ar- around this race. Again, really early tea leaves and all. But still, um, you know, Democrats took solace that she ru- she won. Uh, the, the Democrat Joe Prouty won about 50 percent, more than 50 percent of the vote in Fayette County. Well, that's just two small precincts that accounted for very little of the overall district. The second thing is we could have a proxy battle in the, in the runoff between those two Republicans over Speaker Ralston. That's hard, too, because Philip Singleton hasn't explicitly opposed Speaker right. Ralston and said right. he'd vote against, but he sure is currying support from people who do oppose. Yeah, Stacey Eric Erickson uh, over at AM 750, the conservative analyst, commentator, has uh, been backing Singleton. We know Erickson wants uh, Ralston out of the Speaker's office. Um, so it's kind of, it is, it, it's, Greg is right. There's a lot of intrigue here. There's smoke, but no fire at this point. Yeah. And I, I would say where there's smoke, there's smoke. And, and that's about it. I mean, I think, uh, just because Erickson has called for Ralston to, to be out and he supports Singleton, Singleton can't make all of his supporters enemies, his enemies. Uh, and, and I don't really see any overt sign that that's happening. I certainly don't see any sign that the voters, know that that's something at play and that that's why they may be voting for Singleton. I don't see it as a proxy for Ralston. And then I would say this, too. Ralston's future doesn't hinge on this guy, Singleton. Um, So far, there's been such a few number of legislators that have been willing to stand up to Ralston. And I don't see Singleton being sort of the rallying cry that that changes that. I I will say this about the Democratic turnout. I wouldn't I wouldn't if I was a Republican, I wouldn't get comfortable that this is any sign of how Democrats will be motivated, because the truth of the matter is it takes money to motivate voters. And there wasn't a significant uh, investment in this race to have uh, seen a a increase in Democratic turnout. And that's going to be the complete opposite case when it comes to next. It was a long shot for Democrats to begin with. Yeah. Yes. Andra, um, it is interesting, though. I mean, it's I think Stacey Evans is right. In some ways, this is kind of a media creation. We're talking about it in terms of Ralston. The AJC has run a couple stories that include a question about whether this is a Ralston battle in some ways. Um, And so maybe this is just us looking for a story here. Uh, Nevertheless, do you believe that it is conceivable that after the next round of elections that David Ralston's future as speaker might be in, you know, at least a little more fragile than it has been? Well, I mean, I think by his behavior, he has opened himself up to a vulnerability that's not going to go away. So there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to seek to capitalize on it. Whether or not they're even close to being successful is a different story. Right. But this is now a part of the narrative. And so for people for whom you know he's made enemies within his own party, this is going to be an issue. So I think the question becomes whether House Speaker Ralston and his allies uh, seek to leverage this. And in particular, in districts like this, do you then mobilize Democrats? Uh, kind of to take the Thad Cochran approach. Um, so in his you know last uh, uh, big 2014 Senate race, um, where he talked about um, you know where he actually openly campaigned to Democrats to remind them that hey um, you might not like me too much but you like me more than you like the other guy, um, and so like strategically that might make sense to do in this case if in fact you are really worried about this becoming a proxy fight. Greg, you're nodding. Yeah, and it's also a show no weakness strategy for for Ralston if, if someone who. Who he he doesn't explicitly support because he's he's him and his allies are are funding Sacrison's campaign wins. It could be seen as a sign of weakness, even 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 though it won't 
the outcome does not hinge, does, will not determine his, his future. Um, he also does not want to show any weakness. Now, he's lost primary fights, surrogate right. battles before, right. especially exactly. in North Georgia. But um, he does, that doesn't mean he wants to lose anymore. Leo? Yeah, I just don't. I don't. Um, I don't see the direct connection to Speaker okay. Lawson's strength in, in, in that race. I think. This Why is Erickson after? It's good for Ralston. radio ratings. Is that what it is? His, his audience is, you know, they are like dogs on the Ralston story, and, and so so it's great for radio. Because ratings. Ralston's not conservative enough for Eric That's Erickson's correct. audience. Eric, you know, Ralston right. has fought against some of their uh, real real, most uh, uh, sacrosanct uh, pieces of legislation, like religious liberty. And he's not as oppositional. I mean, he just doesn't oppose Democrat leaders just because they're Democrats. I mean, he, and a lot of this Republican verve right now is very much be oppositional regardless. Yeah, I think you could say, Greg, that with the exception of 481, and, and that's a big, big exception, so it you know it's, it says a lot, uh, Ralston in some ways has been uh, a cooling saucer in, uh, in terms of conservative ideology. And look, even with the heartbeat, the so-called heartbeat bill, the anti-abortion bill, um, Ralston was, uh, although he ended up being firmly in support of it. First, there was a watered-down variation of it, the trigger the trigger um, bill that was going to really effectively do nothing um, that was being pushed by House leadership at first. So. Okay. Okay. Stacey Evans, uh, yesterday, uh, Teresa, Tomlin's campa- Teresa Tomlinson's campaign announced that they had the endorsement of Andrew Young and his wife, uh, Carolyn. Um, uh, what does that mean for the race for Senate? It's a big deal. I mean, Andrew Young, Ambassador Andrew Young, is a coveted endorsement in any Democratic primary. So kudos to Teresa for landing it. And and certainly other folks in the race will try to downplay it, but they would all rather have it than not have it. And, and now she has it. I, that race is very – it was very interesting to me that Ambassador Young announced an endorsement when he did because – I don't think that race is set yet. I I still think that there are at least one or two other people to get in. And so it was interesting that perhaps it could be it could just be coincidence. But it seemed like to me maybe he was trying to get out in front of something that may be coming. So on that on that very point, Andre, two questions for you, I think, really. Number one, do endorsements matter today the way they may have uh, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, Does Andrew Young's endorsement matter? And second, is this, in fact, yesterday when we talked about this on the show, the panel suggested this was a way to seal off any more entrance into the Democratic primary. Take any of those you want. So, I mean, I think the part that's tough about this is that this there are two races. And so people have options. So, OK, then. So Andrew Young has has made the endorsement in the Democratic primary for the matchup against David Perdue. What about this new matchup now that we have now that Senator Isaacson has announced his retirement? Um, and so I think that that is tough. And I think because the race is kind of up in the air and because both fields haven't completely been settled yet, that's what makes this a lot more complicated. Um, you know, there's still the possibility for one of these candidates or more of them to jump ship on the Purdue race and decide that they'd rather go for the Isaacson seat. So I, I think that there's a lot out there. What I think it is signaling is that Teresa Tomlinson is here to pr- is here to play. And so she might be trying to clear the field in that particular race and, and is telling people to go fight in the jungle primary. Um, I don't expect that her opponents um, are going to, to pay any attention to that. And they're going to do whatever it was that they had planned on doing before. Um, and while I think uh, uh, Ambassador Young's uh, endorsement certainly carries uh, weight, it certainly sends a signal about establishment support that could help her while she's while we wait to see what her, what those uh, third quarter numbers look like. You know, I think that there's still a lot that, you know, any of these candidates is going to have to do in order to secure the nomination. You know, go ahead. No, I think this is really interesting because I recall a conversation with you, perhaps in Cleveland, where we were talking about intergenerational. This was at the Republican National Convention. Yes, yes, yes. We spent a lot of time time together. together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that we talked about intergenerational differences in the civil rights impact and Mm -hmm. influence. And I'm starting to wonder, I mean, with the young man from Clarkson, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just opposed as a Democrat, right? He's more of that spirit of the young black activist kind of movement spirit. And here, even is, though he's a white man, even though he's a white okay, man, just make sure so, for our viewers, you know, listeners just, who don't know, he's white. He, he is white, <laughs> and he is quite progressive for pretty pretty far left, in my opinion. So, is is are we starting to see people like uh, Andrew Young start to say, okay, I'm a traditional 
kind of blue Democrat, blue dog Democrat, and I, I'm, I'm transcending the whole racial solidarity, kind of, you know, do what the movement is doing kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Young's been there for decades. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's an establishment candidate, right. right? And so he's sending an establishment signal about sort of who uh, he thinks is more electable, who's right. more pragmatic in this type of situation. So I think, you know, before Senator Isaacson announced his retirement, that Democratic race was going to be a fight for somebody who was probably going to be more acceptable to the establishment versus the young progressive type of candidate. So that was already there. Um, you know, it gets complicated by Sarah Riggs Amico a little bit, but I don't think it's terribly surprising at all that Andrew Young would endorse the establishment candidate. The timing of all this was very curious. early, very early, because as Stacey said, the field is not set yet. We're expecting one multiple more candidates to get in the race. And the big question has always has long been, will there be any African-American candidates in this contest? Well, because right now you've got three, maybe soon four white candidates in this race. Who's the fourth who's going to jump into what we're now calling Senate race Senate one, race number the one. race against Look, David John Ossoff is very well known to have been looking at this race for a long time. He's had town hall meetings up in North Georgia, far outside the 6th District. He was the unsuccessful But are you telling candidate. us he's ready to do it? You said soon we may I, have a look, fourth. I expect him... Okay. I, I expect him to get in the race. He's widely okay. expected to get in the race. I think that's that's safe to say. Um, but will but the thing that happened with the Isaacson resignation, his announcement to retire at the end of the year, is it also got candidates not only looking at that race, but candidates to rethink the Purdue race, who who might have said, "No way, I'm not interested in the Purdue race." To rethink that one because now there'll be a lot more money and attention. Even though it's a completely different contest with a primary where the special election for Isaacson is a general election uh, contest, they're going to be relooking at, at, at the Purdue race. And you might see candidates that two weeks ago said no way who are rethinking it. And, and you can have some bigger names, too, uh, getting in that race. Stacey, well, as, go ahead. Uh, well, and I think one of those names is uh, Lucy McBath. I think she's looking seriously at, uh, at getting in a Senate race. And, yeah. and it could it could be either one. And it'll be really interesting to see what she decides. And obviously for her, uh, gun safety is, is a big issue. And I think the fact that Mitch McConnell is sitting on a resolution uh, for background checks that she sponsored is is having her think very seriously. You, you couple that with the Isaacson retirement and it starts to look uh, very possible that she jumps in one of those races. Stacey, Andra made the point that it is still conceivable that one of the three who is uh, declared for David Perdue's Senate seat, one of the three Democrats, you know, could switch to Senate race number two. But interestingly enough, all three of them in the aftermath of Isaacson's announcement have said no. Pretty quickly. We're state. Yeah, immediately. I mean, Sarah Amico was on our show the day after Johnny made his announcement and said, I'm staying in the uh, David Perdue race. Teresa Tomlinson immediately sent out a note after Johnny's uh, message. So did uh, Ted Terry. It is you're a, you've run a statewide race. Is it to some extent? Have you already, when you declare you're running against David Perdue, have you already essentially told us uh, your reason for being in in the race? Have you gone to donors and said I'm out to beat David Perdue? And is it hard to back away from that then? Well, I think no. I, I think they could back away from it if they choose to, and we may very well see one or more of them do just that. But I think it's not surprising that right after the announcement, they all wanted to show strength. And this is the race I've chosen. Mm. I'm choosing to go against Purdue. And, and if they don't switch to the other race, you wouldn't want there to be any soundbite where it looks like you're afraid of David Purdue and that you were thinking that maybe you might need to move over and run for the open seat because it would be easier. They wouldn't want to create that soundbite. Andra? I mean, you know, I take that and I think that that's actually pretty sound reasoning. You don't want to look like you're not just don't you want to look weak. You also don't want to look like you're kind of flip flopping um, on issues. And I think the other reason why um, you might want to stay in the traditional primary versus going to the jungle primary, because I don't actually necessarily think that it is easier to win the jungle primary. You don't have to go up against a incumbent who's had their seat for an entire term of office. But I think what they're thinking is, is in the ideological fight within the Democratic Party particularly Terry and Tomlinson, and actually Amico, too, they actually represent very sort of different strains of Democratic Party politics, and they're trying to figure out which one of them is dominant in, in the state. And so they're both, they're all convinced that they might actually be the one to put the coalition Before together. we take our break, Greg Bluestein, you broke a little bit of news this afternoon on the Insider blog. Uh, DNC officials are going to be in town next week to meet with uh, Nakima Williams, the chair of the state party, and others here to start helping figure 
figure out who's running for what and where they're headed. Yeah, I think the party's worst nightmare is is kind of what happened to Republicans in the 2017 special election for the sixth district, where there were six or there was 18 candidates overall and six or seven really credible Republicans who all you know bashed each other and let John Ossoff come within about two points of winning that seat outright uh, because they were so d- distracted and focused on on attacking each other. So I don't I don't know that Democrats will try to vocally clear the field, but they do want to make sure that everyone understands the stakes, and I think everyone does, but really make clear to every potential Senate Democratic candidate, because there's more than a dozen, what it will take to run this type of campaign that could cost $100 million plus. Yeah. All right. yeah, and I, I think that Kemp's biggest concern about his appointment on the Republican side is who will have the most money to run the campaign. All right. Uh, let's get our uh, final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about presidential politics. This is Political Rewind. Downton Abbey is coming to the big screen. Right now, GPB invites you to be among the first to see this new feature film. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton Tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton Tickets. On the next fresh air, the alarming growth of overdose deaths from the synthetic opioid fentanyl. We talk with journalist Ben Westoff, author of Fentanyl, Inc., about the manufacture, sale, and use of fentanyl, which is being added to heroin and other drugs. He spoke to dealers operating on the dark web and visited companies in China that make fentanyl and its components. Join us. Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Andrew Gillespie, you follow national politics very carefully, very closely. You're, I, so let's talk about this emerging conventional wisdom among some analysts who are saying, gee, we're, we've still got a long way to go, but the reality is there are now only three realistic candidates for the Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. Do you go along with that thinking? Well, I'm cautious about saying that. I think that there is some truth to this. So in this field of however many it is right now, 21, 20, however many we're at right now, I start to lose count. Right. I think if you didn't make the stage for next week's debate, yeah, you're probably not going to be the nominee. And those people, um, you know, I hate to say this, should quit. Um, Right. Because it's you're you're wasting everybody's time by being a part of the race. You might be bringing up really important ideas, but there are other things that you could be doing. Some of them in particular could be running for Senate seats. Um, You know, I think for the 10 who did make the cut. Yeah. I mean, if you're in the bottom half, the chances are harder, but it's going to be really hard still to to convince them of that before the first primary. So barring them running out of money before the end of the year, certain people are putting their, uh, you know, kind of staking their claim on seeing how well they're doing in Iowa and New Hampshire. So they're looking at, you know, what they're doing on the doors in these in these states. They're looking at what their statewide operations are going to be. Um, and so as a result of that, they think that they might have a chance, even if it's still a bit of a pipe dream. Um, part of the reason why people are, are saying that it really is a race of three is that the polls have been pretty consistent mm-hmm. about who the top three are. And so this is very similar. They're thinking back to people kind of crossing their fingers and hoping that Donald Trump wouldn't get the nomination in 2016. You know, you can count the number of weeks on your hands after he announced his uh, after he announced his candidacy that he wasn't the top uh, vote getter in the polls. And so having seen this consistent behavior, people are saying, yeah, we probably do know who the top three are. I think the big wild card in this is whether or not Joe Biden has the potential to implode. And that's why a lot of people are in the race because they think that they might actually be able to sort of benefit from an implosion on his part. Stacey, there are, there are going to be Democrats out there who, as the momentum moves more and more toward these three candidates, as the rules for debates continue to favor a smaller number of candidates, who are going to say the Democrats are making the sta- same mistake they made in 2016, which is they sealed off the race uh, uh, for Hillary Clinton. There weren't as many Democrats, but nevertheless, they had picked one favorite. Mm-hmm. I think there are Democrats out there going to say, we're losing the opportunity to hear voices of our party that matter if we start narrowing the field that dramatically. 
Well, folks are going to say that, but but folks are wrong. Uh, let me just say that. I mean, you've got 10 people on the debate stage still. We're not talking about three. We're not talking about two. Right. We're talking about 10. Right. And some of the most progressive voices are on that stage. It's really the more conservative, moderate voices like Bullock and others that are out. So people are going to say that. Twitter is going to say that. But they're wrong. All right. Greg, I want to throw something in here and, and have you comment on this. Um, 538 has a terrific article up on their website right now that talks about the fact that their crunching of numbers shows that it is the most liberal voters who are most engaged right now in Democratic Party politics. So, for instance, when they asked the question of who is paying a lot of attention to the presidential campaign, 69% of the people who say they are, as of August 21st to the 26th, are very liberal. 45% are somewhat liberal. 47% are moderate or conservative. And guess what? It's those very liberal people who are paying attention who all like Elizabeth Warren and who are energized, 538 would argue, to go to the polls and vote. And it's helping to shape the policies up and down the Democratic presidential field. Right? I mean, it's the reason why we're seeing um, positions on guns and, and abortion and income inequality and climate change and things that, we, that would have been inconceivable, you know, even 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 four years ago. Um, so I, and, I, and I think, too, it's it's trickling down to Georgia politics, too. Um, and you're seeing in the Senate race um, candidates like Ted Terry, you mentioned him earlier, who have very progressive stands, stances in, a, in, in his town of Clarkston, using those to try to push them statewide. Andre, um, do you go for? Do you buy this that five thirty eight number crunching? I do, um, and I actually thought the argument was a little basic because um, it's median voter theory. And so we think about median voter theory in terms of a general election that the candidate who is going to appeal to the voter who's ideologically in the center, that's the 50 percent plus one voter, is the one who wins the election. Um, but we forget that the first part of median voter theory talks about sort of what this looks like in primaries. And when you know you have a truncated electorate that's ideologically truncated, as primaries are, that means that the median voter in a primary is likely going going to be more ideologically extreme than a voter is going to be in a general election. So, so it's not surprising that the Democratic base is more liberal than what the overall sort of, you know, average so, Democratic voter So that voter supports, is. and we're running out of yeah. time, but that does support a lot of the thinking that while Joe Biden shows up at the top of all of the horse race polls, when you start digging down into the crosstabs, deeper into the data sets, you find that Biden is not as strong as people might think he is based on the horse race. Right. And so what that means means for, you know, the, uh, the Biden candidate or any for Sanders or anybody else for that matter is you got to figure out a way to electrify your base of supporters and make sure that that group actually shows up to vote. Stacey Evans, Democrat yeah. Stacey Evans, have you picked your candidate yet? We we ask this question of everybody. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, who's been involved in politics actively. So I'm not picking on you. Uh, I pick whoever gets nominated. That's my that's my candidate. I have my favorite uh, right now, uh, Joe Biden. I've always been a big fan of his. And I found this article really interesting because I think it's not necessarily true that the most plugged in voter is the most likely voter. Well, that, uh, that most likely voters follow Joe here. Biden. Those are the reliable, the older voters. They vote every time. They're going to vote. Young people get really excited sometimes about waving signs, but they don't necessarily make it to the polls. Uh, Leo, one very quick comment from you on this. Are you still exiled from the Republican Party for your rejection of President Trump? <laughs> I just posted on my uh, Instagram, Leo Smith Politics, a RESIC, a RESIC, Republican exit thing. I haven't exited. Uh, I'm still here. All right. I'm not going uh, Leo Smith, Andre Gillespie, <laughs> Stacey Evans, uh, uh, Greg Bluestein, thanks so much for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. We're off tomorrow, but we'll see you again at 2 o'clock on Friday for another Political Rewind.